Well, Gateway, good day to you. Uh, if this is perhaps your first time here joining with us, uh, welcome. I'm Kyle. I'm a pastor here. Uh, we're right in the midst, in the throes, if you will, of a series called The Spirit is Greater Than the Flesh. And this week, we're turning to consider uh, the fruit of the Spirit, goodness. And so, uh, if you will, uh, wherever you may be, uh, in honor for God's Word, would you rise uh, for the reading of our teaching text? And it's going to be a get up and sit down kind of a moment. <laughs> Uh, So our teaching text comes to us from Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, and this is what we read. The fruit of the Spirit is goodness. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word, and you can have a seat. It's kind of curious to me, considering the timing of a series on uh, the exploration of the character of Christ being formed in this local church called Gateway Church, uh, it comes right as we enter into this new year, 2021. And this is around the time when uh, many people are starting to reconsider those resolutions that they've made. And I found this to be fascinating, uh, this uh, intersection between resolutions and the series on the character of Jesus and the fruit of the Spirit. And what came to be true is that uh, each year, this ritual exists where anyone really at, at no personal cost can uh, make a resolution, and then they can just jump right out of that resolution a couple weeks later. And it's, it's thought that upwards of 50% of Americans actually enter into this ritual annually of making and breaking resolutions, and then only 10% of those people who make resolutions have the resolve to see their resolutions through. And I, I perhaps this uh, is a fascination to me because it's a reflection of my own <laughs> uh, personal story, but I, I started noodling around the internet and thinking, well, why is it? Why is it the case that so few people keep their resolutions? And I came across an article that I found really helpful on the psychology of resolutions by psychiatrist Dr. Charles Herrick. And overall, what Herrick breaks down is how habits shape us, and more specifically, how habits, really from a psychological perspective, shape us even when we're not aware that they're shaping us. That is to say that habits are multifaceted, meaning there's many elements that are reinforcing our habits, and that makes them difficult to break. For example, just consider smoking. So if you are a chronic smoker, it's not just that there's a biological addiction to nicotine. There's more going on there because smoking is also a habit. And it's a habit that's influenced and reinforced by how you live, where you work, who your community is. So do the people you live and work with and and spend time around, do they also take little smoke breaks? This is, it's multifaceted. And more so, habits are deeply ingrained in what's called our implicit memory. And if this is starting to feel a little bit luxury and you're thinking, are we talking about the fruit of the Spirit? Still, just stay with me. (laughs) We're going to get there. Uh, So habits are deeply ingrained in what's called our implicit memory. And implicit memory, it uses our past experiences to help us remember things without having to actively think about them. You actually know more about this than you may think that you do. This is how you can get to a destination and not know how you got there. This is how you can get home from the grocery store, the gym, or work, and pull into your parking spot at your apartment, or pull into your drive and go, what just happened? Did I? What happened? You see, no longer do you have to think about 
braking or turn signals or the streets because that route is ingrained in your implicit memory. But when there's construction on your normal route and you're diverted, all of a sudden you have to start paying attention to what's happening around you. And then if you wanna amplify that, let's say there's a density of traffic and then there's some inclement weather, a storm of some sort, y your hands are gripping the wheel a little bit tighter, you're more aware. All of those things make what was implicit now explicit. And this is what a resolution does. A resolution disrupts those deeply ingrained patterns in our lives and requires us to be aware of where we're headed, of our surroundings, and how we're going to get there. In other words, resolutions require us to reroute our habits. And in a sense, that's what this series is all about. It is a resolution to be formed out of the image of the world and into the image of Jesus. And, and therefore, to have the way of Jesus, the way that Jesus thinks and loves and lives, the way of Jesus deeply ingrained in our implicit memory. Or if we were to use the language surrounding our passage or the language of the New Testament, we could say, to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to keep in step with the Spirit. And as I, I came to that place where I was thinking, okay, yes, this, this is actually what we're, what we're doing. We're resolving to have the character of Jesus formed in us. This thought came to my mind. I said, well, what if I'm in the 90% of people who don't see a resolution through? Or what if we as a community of Jesus followers are in that 90%? And we start off, we resolve in our minds to do this thing but then it just becomes too hard. We're fatigued. We don't want to reroute our habits anymore. We just want our habits because they're, they're easy. We don't have to think about them. And then I remembered, or perhaps it's better to say that the Spirit brought it to mind, that the character of Jesus is formed in us by the power of the Spirit. And so as we participate with the Spirit of the living God, it is He, the Spirit, who comforts us, who emboldens us, who in our weakness, the Spirit is the one whose strength carries us through. And ultimately, we can say it is God who does the work through the Holy Spirit. Therefore, as we turn this week to consider what it might look like to be a community formed by goodness, a facet of the fruit of the Spirit, I want us to remember, and this is for me as much as I'm inviting you into it, I want us to remember that the character of Jesus, which is displayed in a microcosm in the fruit of the Spirit, that that is formed in us by the power of the Spirit. However, um, goodness, one of these facets of the single fruit of the Spirit, it poses a distinct challenge for us because in our cultural imagination, goodness isn't sexy. It doesn't grab our attention. It doesn't really spark a ton of curiosity. It's this opaque beige thing. Goodness in our culture isn't good enough. So th think about it this way. We have best-selling books that tell us to ascend from goodness to greatness. And it gives us a strategic platform and pathway to get there. When we consider how we've done over the weekend and we ask one another these questions of, oh, how was your weekend? We respond with that, it was, it was good. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't great, it was good, it was good. And even the tone shifts. It's just, it's not the best, but it was good. 
And if that's true at a cultural level, I, I know that I have said those very words and I've had that little, hey, it was, it was good. If that's true at a cultural level, we're no better off in, in the church. So I remember working uh, in, for the first time I was really working in ministry, I was uh, working with youth and in that context in a local church, every week the pastor would come into the room and greet the room and would say, God is good. And he would leave a space and everybody would say, all the time. And he would say, all the time. Leave the space. Yeah, if, if you know, you know. God is good all the time and all the time God is good. And then we would go on to sing songs like, you are good, good, oh, like what? What are we even saying? <laughs> By the end of that time, I, I had an inclination. I, I had some sort of instinct about what we were talking about when we were talking about goodness. But we never really took the time to unpack what biblical goodness was, how substantive it is. And so those introductory statements and those songs just became Christian cliché. And it doesn't negate the reality of the goodness of God. It just meant that it didn't really sit heavy in my heart. It just passed on by. And so before we actually lean into this and and explore biblical goodness, I think it would be helpful to unpack what biblical, or excuse me, to unpack what goodness is not. So goodness is not a personal value. And, And talking about the subjectification or just goodness as a personal value. Uh, Philip Kinnison, in in his book, A Life on the Vine, which is about cultivating the fruit of the Spirit, uh, he says this, we find it increasingly difficult to discuss what used to be called the common good. In its place, we have substituted the notion that individuals should be free to determine for themselves what is good and right in any particular situation. Although there are some legal boundaries that would restrain us from doing what we agree is wrong to do, there is little that would help us know what is right or good to do. As a result, the good and the right are increasingly being reduced to what is legal. In short, if one has not broken any laws, one is a good or moral person. So if we're tasked with defining good, and and for that matter, evil, or right and wrong, however you want to describe it, but for our purposes, good, on our own terms, what's stopping my neighbor from rewriting the prohibition against murder? Like, what if that just no longer suits her personal value system? And and then if I went and like confronted her or it was just having, maybe it's not a confrontation, (laughs) it's just a conversation and we're we're having this conversation, this comes out and she says, well, you know, it it looks like we may just have to agree to disagree. By the way, watch your back. Like, what is that all about? Well, in in that moment, that's a bit alarming. (laughs) I'm not okay with that as a, like the fabric of goodness in the world. And while that is an extreme example, I think it helps us to see that this goodness as a personal value does not display or lead to goodness. There's over 7 billion people in the world, which means there's 7 billion definitions of goodness? How is that tenable? How can we move forward in the world? This is ridiculous. And it is. But the irony of that impulse to make goodness a personal value is that it's nothing new. 
In the work of, of Dr. Tim Mackey, it's been super formational and foundational for me here. He shows that this is the core human temptation. That whole thing in Genesis 3 with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and uh, the human fallout story, that is all about defining and redefining good and evil on our own terms, rather than trusting God's vision and definition for human flourishing. See, goodness is not a personal value. And it's also not moral superiority. And we love, we love to do this in our culture. And I know that I'm, I'm guilty of this. We, we love to be better than others. We love to be affirmed and be made much of. And there is a place to, to value people and to honor people. And I'm not really talking about that right here. I'm talking about that, that appetite for applause and notoriety that, that puffs us up in the language of the Bible. See, but the Spirit of the living God doesn't come into the cultivated soil of our hearts to just make us look good or feel great. We would just think about this parable in Luke 18. I think this is a place that vibrantly displays how goodness is not moral superiority. In this parable that Jesus tells in Luke 18, we have two primary characters. You have a Pharisee and a tax collector. And this is how Jesus starts off. Pretty strong, I'd say. (laughs) To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Let me just repeat this in in case this resonates with you at a heart level. Um, If you are confident of your own righteousness and have the tendency to look down on everyone else around you, listen up. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. If you don't feel the contrast of this, let me just tease this out a little bit. The temple in the Hebrew imagination is the place where heaven and earth overlap. It is the place where the people of Israel and those who had given their allegiance to God would come to offer up sacrifices of praise and physical sacrifices, grain, oil, animals, etc. And they would orient their hearts and their lives to God. They would display in physical form their allegiance to God. And yet, for the Pharisee, something different is happening. It's not about a Godward orientation or an allegiance to Yahweh in a a place of genuine praise and prayer. There's something different happening there. Because moral superiority looks around and understands goodness in comparison to its surroundings. Moral superiority says things like, well, I'd never cheat like that. It's always the comparison. I'd, I'd, I'd never say those things or do those things. Moral superiority assumes that humanity, really those who are around them, that that is the appropriate reference point for defining goodness. The irony and really the potency of Jesus' words in Luke 18 is that a Pharisee, who is a religious leader of the day, often a ruler, who has the whole of the scriptures memorized, they, they would know what the Bible has to say about that comparison. 
They would even know what the Bible has to say about people and our condition. Words like this in Psalm 14. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. It's it's almost like this part of the scriptures, this reality of the human condition has been sketched out, crossed out in the mind of the Pharisee. And now, of course, Jesus is telling a parable. He's telling this to people who live like this, but it is a parable. And the beauty of a parable is we actually get to see ourselves into it. So its potency increases in that way. And it makes us ask, then, is this, is this me? Is this how I define goodness in contrast to others? You see, the point that the psalmist is making is, is not that we are without hope. I mean, that seems like a pretty <laughs> dire reality. No one is good. Nobody does it. Nobody seeks after God. Not even one that does feel a bit dire. So the psalmist isn't here just to like d- totally deflate us at this point. Uh, rather, the psalmist is saying that humanity is not our hope. That there And if this is true, that the human condition is one of brokenness and one of fragility, then goodness must necessarily be sought outside of humanity. And so it's here that we then turn again to the question we asked earlier. What might it look like to be a community formed by goodness? If we're not looking around at one another, where are we looking? In order to respond to that question, we really do have to have a vision for biblical goodness. And so let us let us turn there. When the Bible talks about goodness, it, it uses this word specifically in our passage, it's uh, agothesine. And it's it's kind of a rare word. It's not used but three times in the New Testament. And it's not really used outside of the Bible in secular Greek. And so it, it becomes a hard word to really get our arms around. But it has this idea of, of an excellence of character. And so when we say that God is good, what we're saying is that the substance of who God is is goodness. So it's, it's not that goodness is a reality outside of God that God has ascended to and that we're also in the process of ascending to that place of goodness. It's, it's the opposite. It's rather that goodness extends from God himself. But if, if you can tell, that is a bit abstract. It's, it's hard for us to sink our teeth into that. And so goodness, goodness can feel still beige. Like, we're not really sure what we're talking about when we're talking about goodness. And so we just sing another song and say, God is good. And so what I want us to do is is look at three specific facets that I think will help us to get our arms around goodness. And this is not exhaustive. This is rather just the beginning. So first, we must see that biblical goodness is all about renewal. We actually see this by way of contrast. And the opening lines of the Bible start off by God declaring that creation— And the pinnacle of creation, humanity, is good and very good. What's cool is that that word good in the Hebrew is this word tov. And so when God gets through, it says, oh, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then humanity comes. Humanity is tov, tov. It's good, good, very good. And right there, 
At that point in the story, humanity not only stands in the wake of goodness, in the wake of the goodness of all creation, humanity also stands on the cusp of God's goodness. That is, they are called to push the bounds of goodness out into the very ends of the earth, to do what God had just done, and to be a part of bringing goodness to bear on the world. But as we just mentioned a moment ago, in Genesis 3, this strange evil invades God's good world and deceives humanity to the extent that humanity goes on to co-opt God's definition of good and reclaim it as their own. So they take what God has defined as good and they flip the script. And in that moment, the ones who are called to carry God's goodness, his vision of flourishing for all of creation and humanity specifically, they take this and they become the very ones who corrupt goodness. They call good evil and evil good. And, and this is actually the place then where we see that goodness is all about renewal. And it is in this contrast that, that goodness begins to like spill forth as this beautiful thing. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. See, throughout the Old Testament, God is constantly working with and through the Hebrew people to bring about renewal. We, we see this in the strangest of places. You actually see this in the law. We covered this a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about this contrast that we find even in our own passage. It says, against such things, the fruit of the Spirit, there is no law. See, the law in Galatians, the, the passage where we're finding this biblical goodness, there's this contention about how to follow Jesus. Do you follow Jesus according to the law or according to the Spirit? But the law isn't a bad thing. The law is actually where we find God's goodness displayed. It's where we find the care for the marginalized, the, the poor, where women are uplifted and given dignity. They can't be abused or sold. All of these beautiful things are taking place there in the law. It's the care for the broken and the marginalized. And God desires for Israel, and I would say through Jesus, us as well, uh, to, to be a contrast community that tells the story of God's renewing goodness. I think that's, that's how we actually see David singing songs like this in Psalm 23. So this is a, a famous psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. At the very end of Psalm 23, we read this. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. See, what we see in this little moment is that goodness is not only at the beginning and then corrupted or distorted, but that goodness is pursuing us and it has as its goal forever. That's a strange way of saying goodness is the beginning and the end of God's story. And we are caught up in that when we are caught up in Jesus. See, maybe you need to hear this today. The goodness of God is coming after you. And when you feel like that's not true, the love of God is coming after you. And it is there to be a present reality of God's grace to you. But that's not all, it's because biblical goodness is, is beautiful. And that word just spilled out of my mouth a, a couple times before. And this is what I mean by the biblical goodness being beautiful. And this is maybe a little bit more abstract. But before we came to Des Moines, our, our family, we, um, we had all these opportunities to go on these midday walks, the things that happen when you don't have a job. 
<laughs> and on one of those walks, I was, I was pushing our eldest in a stroller and the wind was funneling down a cross street in front of us. So we were kind of protected um, on both sides. And then in front of us, the wind was tunneling through there and it was moving the trees every which way. And honestly, like they're bending and they're not snapping is kind of intense. And um, Finn at that moment had this audible reaction. I wish I could remember more distinctly what he said. Was it a gasp or what it was? But it, it got my attention. And so I looked down in the stroller and he has this look of amazement at what the wind can do. And I realized this is the first time he's seeing wind. And now I know that he's not really seeing the wind. He's seeing the effects of the wind, but go, go with me here. He's seeing the power and the beauty of creation on display. And so through the vantage point of a child, my world was opened back up to see what was accessible. I mean, how often do you think about what's happening with the wind and like the capacity of a tree to bend and not break? Now we, you know, we had some derecho action uh, this, this summer, so we definitely saw some trees break, but my goodness, like they get twisted around and that's not it. Like all of creation does this. Have you seen some of the sunsets recently? Like the way that the, the reds are stretching out over the sky, just the beauty that's there. It, it opens up our view, our vantage point, it lifts our eyes to a story bigger than ourselves. This is what beauty does. It points to the goodness of God, that there is something bigger than the brokenness in the world. If you've ever been captivated by a photo or if you've ever been captivated by a work of art and you just find yourself being drawn into it, that is what goodness does. It tells you that there is something bigger and beautiful and more grand to be had in this world. It's biblical goodness is beautiful. And what I love is that that's not the end of biblical goodness. Of course it's not. But lastly, this third facet that I think will help us to get our arms around us is, is to say that biblical goodness is defiant. So in Romans 12, we, we read this, and I remember memorizing this verse of, of do, not become over, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by doing good. Now, I, I for so long, I had no real context for this. <laughs> and I'm actually, I'm not gonna dive into the context of what Paul is doing there in Romans 12. I just want us to see the force of this passage, that there is a reality at work in the world, Paul calls evil here, and it is seeking to overcome. Earlier in Genesis, we actually see this moment where we see sin named and the action of sin named for the first time. And we see that sin is crouching, seeking to devour. That there are forces at work in the world that are seeking to overcome. And yet, that's not the end. That, that is not, even as we distort goodness, there's something that overcomes that. And Paul says, it is good. We actually overcome evil with good. So goodness, therefore, it's not a squishy, opaque, or beige thing. Goodness is a force for renewal and beauty and defiance in the world. Goodness is saying that things started good and they are finishing good. And as we defy with the spirit of goodness, we're actually participating in God's renewal. 
You see, this, this defiant goodness is the confrontation of evil. It's where women and men are trafficked, boys and girls are trafficked and sold for pleasure. Goodness in that place confronts where injustices of all sorts, racial just injustice takes place, goodness confronts. Where the truth is abandoned and compromised, goodness confronts in that moment. And all of those confrontations are a way to say and to tell a different story. I think we actually, we, we, we begin to feel this and, and see ourselves into this when we read Jesus's words in the Sermon on the Mount. He says this in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 14, You are the light of the world. A, a, a town or a city built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You see, Goodness as a defiant reality is something that contrasts those around us. Biblical goodness will swim upstream. It will dodge when others are dipping. It, it has a contrasting reality because it receives its definition from God himself. See, see, goodness does not reform and reshape as the age goes along, as each generation passes by. It's not like you get a new definition of goodness, as is how we define goodness today. No, no, no. Goodness is a constant reality that extends from God. And I, I think that where the Spirit of God is animating a community and bringing about this type of goodness, goodness that is all about renewal and beauty and in a defiant spirit, a spirit of like a contrast and a spirit of goodness, I, like, I don't even know, like the words are, are leaving my mind. Like what is, what is this goodness that says, I cannot let that injustice stand? It's an activism. That type of goodness is the goodness that the Spirit of the living God wants to activate in a community. And when that takes place, there is a beautiful contrast that tells another story. It's the story of renewal. This is the story that God is intent on writing on our hearts. This is the story that God wants to, to work out in us and through us. And I love Philip Yancey, who's um, like an author who's near and dear to my heart, just a journalist. So he's really, um, I love his writing. It's super accessible, but he talks about he doesn't really understand why God sees fit to work through ordinary people like you and me. See, God has in his interest working through humanity. God is still intent on telling the story of his goodness through humanity, which I think amplifies it all the more. And we say things, well, like, Kyle, this is great. Like, I, I'm totally down with goodness and even receiving that goodness from, from God. But then I'm only human. I'm only human. Of course, I'm going to make mistakes. And to one extent, sure. But I think that when we say that, we're actually believing a lie. See, what if we're not human enough? See, we're not in this alone. Remember, this thing, the character of Jesus is being formed in us by the power of spirit, who is the spirit of Jesus. Jesus is the truly human one. He is the one who embodies this reality. And as we participate with God through the Spirit, man, His character starts to be formed in us. We become more fully human, which is to say that goodness 
is to pursue being human. It is to pursue flourishing. So biblical goodness is actually the pathway to the good life. Go figure. And this is, this is actually found and typified. It's brought to its completion in Jesus. What's upsetting about this is that Jesus gives himself away. That's what's so contrasting about being a follower of Jesus. It's upside down. Is he is rewriting what we have wronged. He is living the life. He has lived the life that we perpetually fail to live. And he is making a new way forward. He's doing it through his church as we keep in step with the Spirit. And so I, I, I'm tempted to like look through certain scenarios and start asking, well, what does it look like for us to embody goodness? What is, how do we do this? What are the scenarios? Okay, I, I want to submit that question to you. What does it look like today to embody goodness, to participate in renewal, to do those very things that if God were in, if Jesus were in your shoes and your gender and your stage of life and all of that you are, if Jesus was in that, what would he do? And as you think on that, may God bring about goodness in your life. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you. We desire that you would come and shape us that you would actually reroute our habits and give us the resolve to have your character formed in us so that you and your way of life would be, that would be our implicit memory. That would be the thing that we did without thinking, that it would become our automatic experience in the world and that as others encounter that reality in us, they would see it and they would glorify you, Father, who are in heaven. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.